0: what's up everybody i'm back with another edition of the state of bitcoin podcast and as always i bring a banger of a guest for this one luke mikich he's a you know somewhat of a macro guy that has some interesting interesting views on bitcoin and a potential of a bitcoin-backed dollar and how the united states could use that to weaponize the dollar so we get into a lot of cool discussions about himself his background uh the advancement of technology he makes an outrageous outrageous claim for the bitcoin price by 2030 so listen to him calling his shot and much much more ladies and gents but as always this is not financial advice and should never be taken as financial advice So please, please, please just understand that everything said by Luke and I in this episode are strictly our opinions and should not be taken as financial advice. Now let's get into the episode. Whoosh. What is up, everybody? We are live with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast, and I'd like to thank everybody listening on podcasting 2.0 apps especially those streaming and boosting me sats. Those are greatly, greatly appreciated. And I've got a special deal for you, plebs coming up here uh, with uh, black Friday and cyber Monday coming up. You can use promo code green candle for 30% off your punch plates at coddle.co that's C O D L dot C O. Get yourself a punch plate, get those, uh, get that Bitcoin off exchanges Use a punch plate to punch in your seed phrases and store those things away. It's a great deal. 30% off is only going to last until Cyber Monday. So be sure to get it and before then and yeah, get that corn off exchanges. We've seen enough with this debacle of FTX and all this other stuff. So if you haven't learned by now, get it off and use a punch plate to type in those seed phrases. Plebs, are you looking for a way to orange pill friends and family? Well, I've got a solution for you. That's right, look no further than Shamory, that's S-H-A-M-O-R-Y. Shamory, they have children's books, card games, stickers, you name it, board games, even little baby onesies for sale now on their website. So be sure to check them out. Use promo code Candle. that's G-R-E-E-N, C A N D L E for 10% off at checkout. That's right. Looking for something to get to your friends and family for this holiday season? Shamri's the answer. Use promo code green candle and I'm giving you 10% off here. So help spread that orange pill. Do it during this holiday season. Now's the time better than ever. Spread the word. Now, check out Shamri. But I've got a very special guest, Luke Mikich. I believe I pronounced it right this time, but uh, he's the host of the Bitcoin Made Simple podcast. You do a lot of great writing for Bitcoin Magazine in your own uh, sub stack, medium, whatever. And uh, a recent guest on Preston Pitchcock podcast. So congratulations on that and uh, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, man. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, man. So uh,
1: let's get it started.
0: Tell us a little bit about yourself. I've heard you in, you know, Twitter Spaces and in other things like that. You sound, you know, very uh, well educated when it comes to macroeconomics and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, how did you kind of get into that? And uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about the orange pill story as well.
1: Uh, well, funny enough, I'm actually very uneducated, very unqualified. I actually found Bitcoin in 2017. Uh, I was at university studying a double major in maths and chem because I didn't know whether I wanted to be a doctor or an engineer. Found Bitcoin in 2017, took a gap year from university, and just for the sole purpose of studying Bitcoin full-time, I started my own business, which is like a personal training business, in 2018, which kind of gave me an income and freed me up enough time to study Bitcoin. So since 2018, I've been studying Bitcoin full-time. I suppose that's my orange pill journey in 2020. I thought, hey, you know, I've been trying to learn about Bitcoin for the past two years. I'm having trouble orange peeling people. I might just start up a YouTube channel and a podcast. So I started making educational videos about Bitcoin in 2020. Um, And since probably uh, late 2020, I've been in the Bitcoin space full-time because... Uh, well, early 2020, I saw the draconian measures being pushed down in Australia. And I thought, boy, I'm not going to be complying with these measures in the future. So I better shut down that personal training business due to all of the uh, health regulations that I thought would be coming down the line. Um, so 2020 was the final ripcord for me when I left uh, Fiat World and entered the Bitcoin space full time. And since then, I'm, uh, I've am i left Australia and I'm uh, working full time writing articles for Amber, which is a great Bitcoin-only company. We just rolled out to 62 countries around the world, actually, with Amber. Um, And i am obviously got my own podcast, which is uh, produced and edited by uh, Amber. And I also manage a social media account as well, which is uh, Coinbeast, another Bitcoin-only company I work for. So, yeah, full-time in the space, doing lots. And I'm just uh, glad to meet people like yourself.
0: Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, I mean, awesome stuff, dude. But, uh, you know, you said you started kind of working in Bitcoin full time 2020. There's been a lot of wild rides as far as the volatility, the price run up, price coming down, uh, you know, the COVID crash down to 4k. So uh, yeah, how's your experience been like working in, you know, the Bitcoin only world and everything like that? You know, I mean, I've seen a lot of, uh, you know, obviously, we've seen a lot of these shitcoin casinos and other like, Crypto related companies come crashing down, but it seems like Bitcoin companies are just it, steady and building. So what's the experience been like, you know, uh, working in a Bitcoin
1: only kind of world um, during this wild and volatile time? It's very different to some of my friends because I have some friends in the whole crypto space and they haven't quite swallowed that orange pill that I've been, you know, forcing down their throats for the past few years. And obviously the crypto company is going bankrupt. So everybody working over in the crypto casinos—they uh, don't have a job anymore because they've all gone to zero. All of the largest companies uh, in crypto look as if they're either on the brink of bankruptcy or they're already bankrupt. Um, so yeah, I mean volatility—the um, volatility in Bitcoin is is something that I, uh, I I've kind of felt from day one. Like I was watching Bitcoin in 2017 as it. Went from like 5k to 20k in the space of like two to three weeks and i was thinking boy i've got to start paying attention to this thing this is wild um but yeah volatility is just something that's uh par for the course um, with bitcoin like bitcoin's a young emergent technology somewhere between one to five percent of the world owns some bitcoin of that portion of the world that actually owns some bitcoin how many of those actually understand bitcoin I would say it's very few, so obviously that's why Bitcoin is so volatile today because it is so young in its adoption curve. So um, I love the volatility; I just uh, I embrace it.
0: Yeah, and let's uh, let's get into this adoption curve because you recently wrote, uh, you know, an article for Bitcoin Magazine about uh, the recent bull run cycle you know the article is titled is this the last is this bull run bitcoin's final cycle and it kind of goes into a little bit about you know the network effects and uh you know overall just the technology adoption so you know why do you get why don't you get into that and kind of where you see us right now as far as like technology and kind of you know the overall adoption because you know obviously on bitcoin twitter it's the the common saying we're still early but You know, I think in that kind of bubble, it gets a little lost, you know, at at a certain point about just how early we are.
1: Yeah. So in that article, I just looked at Bitcoin through the lens of it being a new emerging technology that I expect it to gain mass adoption. And if you look at all of the adoptions um, of prior technologies, um, such as like the smartphone or the internet or the personal computer, they follow an adoption curve that takes the shape of an S. So most people would have heard um, of an S curve adoption chart. Um, And there's um, there's a couple of really interesting charts and graphics that um, kind of show the average um, time it takes for a technology to go from zero to 100% adoption. Um, so a lot of these um, emerging disruptive technologies that have reached mass adoption um, in the late twentieth uh, in the late twenty in the late twentieth century and early twenty first century, they go for a very similar pattern. So typically, it takes these technologies around ten years to go from zero to ten percent adoption, and then you kind of hit an inflection point. You reach a critical mass, and it takes the same amount of time to go from ten percent adoption. To 90% adoption. So pretty much mainstream. Um, So Bitcoin today, it is, you know, around 13, 14 years old. Um, I believe that it's in that second phase of its adoption cycle. Um, I actually think that 2020 was the large inflection point where I believe Bitcoin has fundamentally changed and I believe it is uh, crossing the chasm is another kind of uh, term in a book that articulates how a technology uh, goes from that 10% adoption to the 90% adoption. It needs to kind of uh, enter the mainstream consciousness and that's where I think Bitcoin is. I think a lot of the volatility it's experiencing today is because it's slowly being adopted um, wide around the world. So obviously like Country adoptions in different countries vary. So maybe in America, adoption might be 5 or 10% in Bitcoin. But countries like Nigeria, adoption is over 30%. So it's, it's actually over 40%. Um, and obviously, other countries like Turkey and Argentina, Bitcoin adoption is a lot higher. Um, so I think um, the, the core premise of that article was to say, okay... In the next bull run or one of these bull runs in the 2020s, I believe that Bitcoin isn't going to experience these diminishing returns. I believe it's actually going to go through a super cycle. Um, Obviously, super cycle is a little bit of a meme from 2021 um, because it hasn't played out that way. The central banks have tightened and Bitcoin's crashed all the way down to 17,000. But the core premise of that article was um, for the first 10 years of Bitcoin's life, 99.99% of people who were trading Bitcoin were retail traders. They were small money, they were degeneratives, they were gamblers. I know because I was one of them, I was speculating on Bitcoin and trading shit coins in 2017 and 18. I didn't know what Bitcoin was. But the premise of the article is saying, okay, I think Bitcoin's fundamentally changing. And after 2020, when the money printers got turned on, I believe that was the first time when the large money and uh, large capital allocators, such as CEOs of public companies like Michael Saylor and Elon Musk, such as uh, nation states and uh, sovereign wealth funds. I believe after 2020, this is the first time that they have started paying Interest to Bitcoin, and they've started actually. In my eyes, I think they're accumulating Bitcoin today. So I think the bull markets in the um, 2020s—they're going to look very, very different to what we saw in the first 10 years of Bitcoin's adoption cycle. Um, I've said a lot there. I'll pause for a minute and let you pull pull that apart any way you want to.
0: Yeah, no worries. So so this is, uh, you know, I do agree with you that, you know, adoption and as far as, uh, you know, plebs and everybody kind of getting into it, nation states, maybe some of the smaller, you know, nation states as well, you know, kind of getting in, you know, we've seen obviously adoption in Latin America start to take off and in some of these other parts of the world that, you know, their fiat currencies are extremely volatile. Um, But here's where I'm going to push back and, and maybe I'd like to see you kind of go deeper into it is. You know, how do you see the, the potential of like maybe a global depression or even, you know, just a prolonged recession uh, kind of affect this adoption? Because, you know, two things that kind of worry me about it right now is that, you know, it, people are going to be kind of running low on fiat, um, whether it's, you know, in the United States, for example, we're seeing credit card debt run up dramatically and, and uh, the amount of personal household savings dropping down a bunch. You know, obviously, we've had student loans kind of being pushed back um, quite a bit, and you know, there, there's those loans are probably going to have to be paid at some point in time as well. So, you know, not only that, I it has me kind of worried of you know people maybe not buy, using their fiat to purchase Bitcoin at least in the United States at this point. And the on the flip side. You know, I am kind of worried about the Bitcoin miners because although, you know, the the price doesn't really matter for, you know, plebs like you or I, it, it does matter for a lot of those miners. And we've seen a lot of these mining companies kind of go under uh file for bankruptcy and some of these other things. So do you think, you know, maybe the potential of this overall global, you know, macro environment is going to kind of prolong that, you know, uh, that takeoff, I guess, for adoption, or do you think that that might even accelerate it just because people start to see the the volatility in their own fiat currency?
1: Yeah, I think it's 100% accelerated. It. Um, the article I wrote about uh, Bitcoin, uh, looking at it through the lens of a technology, that was in uh, late 2021. Um, so for I think we were around 30 or 40 thousand dollars a pop per Bitcoin. And like I was saying, I I believe stock to flow is a a faulty model. I think all models are going to be broken in the 2020s. And I said, I I expect Bitcoin to reach, you know, at least $50 million per coin uh, by the year 2030 in today's dollars. So that's not hyperinflated dollars. I believe like if 30% of the world's wealth flows into Bitcoin, um, I just ran the numbers and I did some simple maths in that article. And I said... 30% of the world's money is stored in Bitcoin. You're looking at a $64 million uh, price tag per Bitcoin. Um, So that's purchasing power in today's dollars. I believe a Bitcoin will be buying you uh, six and a half Malibu beach houses by 2030 because they go for about $10 $10 million a pop. Um, So that was in 2021. And a lot of people have read that article and they said, "Okay, Luke, you wrote that when Bitcoin was about $40,000. Today, Bitcoin's, you know, $17,000. Central banks are tightening monetary policy. It looks as if maybe inflation's, you know, peaked a little bit here in the US. I don't think it has, though. Um, but a lot of people are, you know, that's their biggest pushback against that thesis. And I believe everything we've seen has uh, just accelerated the uh, the timeline on how I believe hyper-Bitcoinization will play out. Um, and it's just kind of con- confirmed the thesis for me. So, we've watched central banks all around the world try to raise rates and they've all failed. Europe, Japan, Australia, every central bank around the world has had to pause interest rates and start printing money. The Bank of England is a great example. Inflation's above 10% in the UK, and they've come out and they're printing money to bail out the pension funds. And what I think is really interesting is. Um, That week, when uh, England announced that pivot, you saw one of the largest daily volumes of people buying Bitcoin with British pounds that we've seen over the past two years. So that means there was more people buying Bitcoin with British pounds in Britain and Europe um, last month than there was during the entire 2021 bull market, which was pretty incredible for me. And it just kind of says, okay, um, yes, the US may be trying to raise interest rates aggressively, but a byproduct of the US raising rates is they're going to blow up all of these other emerging market currencies around the world. And when you have inflation at 10% in Britain um, and the Bank of England printing money, people are going to race out of holding the British pound and they're going to go straight to Bitcoin. Like the British pounds at a 37-year low measured against the dollar. Um, That's not even factoring in 10% inflation, which is a faulty metric. Inflation is probably like 20% in Britain. Um, So I I believe everything we've seen is wildly bullish for Bitcoin. Um, And to the point about a global depression, um, I I couldn't agree more. If the Fed continues to raise rates, we're going to see a global depression. Um, And if they don't pivot, the banking system all around the world, so the entire euro dollar market banking system, I believe it's going to freeze and blow up. Um, The same way that in the 2008 global financial recession, if the Fed didn't come out with that TARP bill, the $700 billion of money they had to create to bail out the banking system, the entire banking system was literally hours away from collapse. That was their words. They said, if we don't actually, you know, print this $700 billion, the entire banking system collapses. I believe the system is just as leveraged as it was in 2007, 2008, And if the Fed does continue to raise rates and you have a global depression where banks seize and, um, you know, uh, you can no longer get your money out of the bank, that's wildly bullish for Bitcoin. Um, But of course, that ties into the point. If there's less wealth around the world because we are in a depression, there's obviously less money that can buy Bitcoin because a lot of wealth has been destroyed. Um, I think stocks and bonds have lost like hundred trillion dollars of wealth in the past year. Maybe it's not, oh, I think it's like 60 or 70 trillion. When you include China's real estate market, I think it is over a hundred trillion dollars of wealth has been just uh, destroyed in the past year. So that's obviously a lot of people are saying, okay, that's less money that can buy Bitcoin. Um, yes, that's true. But I believe there's uh, fewer and fewer sellers selling Bitcoin these days. And um, there's one chart that I always go back to that I believe validates that, and it's the amount of Bitcoins that's actually available uh, for sale on exchanges. So again, for the first 12 years of Bitcoin's life from 2008 to 2020, the number of Bitcoin on exchanges only grew, okay? That's because people didn't understand Bitcoin. So they were mining Bitcoin, they were um, buying Bitcoin, and they were sending it to exchanges to sell it for fiat because they didn't get it. But in 2020, that all changed when the money printers got turned on in early 2020 and everyone around the world, even the central bankers, sovereign wealth funds and corporations um, woke up to the fact that, hang on a minute, I'm holding melting ice cubes as losing 30 to 40 percent of their value a year. Um, What you actually saw was for the first time in Bitcoin's life, um, coins started leaving exchanges. Okay, so the amount of Bitcoin on exchanges peaked out at 3.1 million ish coins in 2020. And today there's somewhere around 2.1 or 2.2 million coins left on exchanges. So all that means is over 33% of all the available Bitcoin for sale has just absolutely evaporated off exchanges. And it's moved into the wallets who we don't know who they are, but we do know from on-chain data that these wallets who have taken the Bitcoin off exchanges, they're not selling their Bitcoin and they're not moving their Bitcoin. They're just taking it off exchanges parking it in their own wallet and they're accumulating it so i think that's really interesting and for me i love to speculate so i i believe that's the large money around the world accumulating bitcoin um and i believe if this trend continues since 2020 Um, what you're going to see is uh, by the year 2027, there's no Bitcoin left on the exchanges. And I believe the price of Bitcoin is going to go absolutely parabolic as people try to withdraw Bitcoin off the exchanges and they find out that their exchange has no Bitcoin. The price of non-KYC corn is going to absolutely moon. So I believe it doesn't matter if there's not much wealth or there's not much money flowing into Bitcoin, because I believe by 2025, 2026, 2027, you're just going to have less and less sellers of Bitcoin. Um, so that was a lot again. And I, um, I'm guilty of going on tangents. So feel free to rope me in if I uh, go get lost down a rabbit hole. But that's how I believe it all unfolding
0: no i mean i i I agree and that that's what these are for man go down the rabbit holes just go (laughs) off and uh you know go off man but um yeah i mean i agree with you and you made a lot of interesting points there especially about you know pulling bitcoin off exchanges which i think is a trend that's going to continue as well especially when we're seeing a lot of these companies like obviously the ftx that's the big headline these days but even before that you know we had celsius voyager some of these other ones um And it seems like there's been a big question, too, whether it's GBTC, like, do they actually have the Bitcoin that they claim, you know, all all these different things, like people are starting to become aware that maybe some of these companies and custodians are issuing paper Bitcoin. And so I think people want to kind of pull it off and verify that, you know, this is actually the Bitcoin that they have. So. I, I, I look for that to continue. And obviously, you know, that's going to make Bitcoin more valuable just because it's not on an exchange where it's easily kind of transferable. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you there. Um, and I think like that's, you know, you, you called that shot on uh, the Bitcoin price. So, I mean, on, on today's dollar terms, you never know. I mean, that could be even, you know, higher or more elevated just because, you know, at, at this point, we don't really know what the Fed's going to do. Um, I'd be... I, I mean, I, I, a lot of people like to speculate whether they're going to kind of continue to raise rates. And I know you, you're good friends with friends of the program, Phil Gibson, and he's kind of, uh, his theory is, you know, the fed's going to continue to raise rates to destroy that offshore dollar market. And he's kind of got me coming around to that theory as well. And so, you know, whether today's dollar terms kind of, uh, doesn't inflate as dramatically as it has in the past, I'm not really sure, but, um, you know, I, I, I think that there's a, there's a lot of question marks kind of going ahead for Bitcoin, but, you know, we are seeing a lot of positives in this space. You know, obviously, El Salvador seems to be, uh, you know, kind of doing pretty well for itself, even though, you know, people like to point at, you know, obviously, uh, since El Salvador has begun purchasing Bitcoin it's gone down in dollar terms, but, you know, I I believe you've been at Adopting Bitcoin. You've been kind of hanging around uh, El Salvador. So why don't you talk about your experience there and just like overall kind of the development that you're seeing, you know, in that, in that area.
1: Yeah. So um, El Salvador is a beautiful country. Um, I've been living in El Salvador for nearly three months now. Um, And it's, uh, it's yeah, it's beautiful. I think um, a lot of people have a lot of opinions on El Salvador um, but I, I would encourage them to go there first before, you know, voicing very strong opinions. I was a little bit, you know, concerned before coming here, listening to all the propaganda and how it's, you know, had one of the highest murder rates um, in the world um, before 2022. Um, but I, I think a lot has changed. Like, Bukele, um, I'm not a fan of martial law, but he's implemented martial law to squash all of the gang violence and um, I, I, I like to ask a lot of the locals, okay, have you noticed a difference in the past six months? Um, and they're overwhelmingly uh, positive of that decision by Bukele. So, and it's very safe. Like I'm a, I'm a gringo. So um, I stand out like a sore thumb, especially with my shitty haircut. So um, I, I, get, I get stared at all the time over here being a gringo, walking around the streets of El Salvador, topless, doing some cardio, doing all sorts of crazy things. Uh, but I feel really safe here. So I like... Um, In terms of the politics, um, I think it's been transformed. Um, And then obviously you start to look at the economics of it and it has also seen a transformation from some of the things Bukele has done. Like tourism is up 90% um, since he made Bitcoin legal tender. That's enormous. Um, And obviously Bitcoiners all around the world are are coming to El Salvador to live here, um, which is kind of crazy that people from Australia canada new zealand all of these quote unquote first world developed democratic safe havens um people are literally escaping these countries to seek out freedom in el salvador like that's that's the core reason i left australia love the country beautiful weather beautiful people uh beautiful beaches but i left because my freedoms were being uh significantly squashed. Let's just leave it there. Um, so it's pretty crazy that people in, the, in developed parts of the world and formerly known as democratic countries are fleeing their countries because they're scared of uh, the rules being implemented in them. And that just kind of goes back to the sovereign individual thesis. So El Salvador is a beautiful country. Um, I didn't see as much as the um, adopting Bitcoin conference as I would have liked. I was working that week, but I, I got out to dinner pretty much every night and caught up with a lot of Bitcoiners there. Um, and it's it was a, an amazing vibe at the conference. It's um, lots of Bitcoiners. Uh, there was no shitcoinery there, which was nice. I think last year when they had the Adopting Bitcoin conference, there was also a shitcoin conference going on at the same time. I think it was called Bitconf or something like that. Um, had a funky name. I don't remember it. But there's a lot of shit coiners in town this time last year. But this year it was just the Adopting Bitcoin conference. Um, it, was, it was amazing. It was a great time. Yeah, and that's good to see that, you know, it is kind of just transitioning to Bitcoin
0: only and they're not kind of dabbling in any of the shit coins, especially with, you know, what's going on in that that kind of market. You're seeing the crazy volatility and, you know, obviously, you know, that that whole side seems to be kind of blowing up. But uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like a lot of positives have gone into, uh, you know, obviously Bukele and Bitcoin, but it seems like they are, you know, from an outsider looking in, they are still really early as far as it goes from the, the local perspective when it comes to, you know, using Bitcoin. Um, at least that's kind of like what I was seeing on, on Twitter. Are you kind of noticing that as well? Like not everywhere maybe accepts it, but very few people kind of paying it.
1: Oh, hundred percent. A lot of people hear the headlines and they say, "Oh, Bitcoin's legal tender in El Salvador." That means adoption must be one hundred percent. And I, I, I thought that for maybe a week or two as well in twenty twenty one. I was a bit excited, um, but then obviously you you uh, see reports of reality and adoption isn't that high. If I had to kind of pinpoint it and guess, I would say maybe adoption's somewhere between ten and twenty percent. Um, in the city, in San Salvador, and uh, El Zonte, it's probably maybe slightly higher, 20 to 30% adoption. Um, so a lot of the developed uh, merchants, um, they are accepting Bitcoin. Um, I personally haven't had to use dollars many times in my three months here because all of the supermarkets accept Bitcoin. Um, you can buy your phone data with Bitcoin, fruits, veggies, meat, everything. Um, so it's uh, it's pretty good, but it's not as high as a lot of people make it out to be. Um, and obviously, but I, for, I talked to people who were here in 2021 when the bill just got passed in September, um, and they said they've seen massive improvements in like, uh, firstly, just the number of businesses accepting Bitcoin, and then just the Lightning Network being slightly more reliable. There was a couple of bugs and issues with the Chivo wallet early on, but a lot of that looks to be resolved um, and everything seems to be improving at a pretty, a pretty uh, rapid rate, which is great to see.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of the critics, I I don't really
1: understand the argument
0: because, you know, obviously we were talking about first world developed countries like Americans, Canadians, Australians, like yourself, kind of going to El Salvador or, or jumping around. And, you know, El Salvador before this, like, you know, there's no way to kind of put this like kind of lightly, it was known as like a third world country. And, you know, a third world country isn't necessarily going to be fixed overnight, or from one little change or something like that. And as well as like with adoption, completely changing the currency or making Bitcoin legal tender, not everybody's just going to magically turn all their dollars into Bitcoin, like right away and just kind of start doing that. So, you know, I'm kind of looking for the adoption to kind of keep increasing. And that's general sense of what i'm hearing is like more people are kind of you know using it and they're kind of seeing the incentives and that kind of brings me to to another point too is that are you kind of noticing some businesses come down there because from what i understand too a, a lot of these bitcoin businesses or other businesses in general You don't have to pay uh, taxes necessarily if you're a business there, but you operate in another country. So say you're a Bitcoin business, you operate in the U.S., but your headquarters is in in El Salvador. You hire El Salvadorians or people that are kind of spending money in El Salvador. You don't necessarily have to pay business tax. I don't know if you know the exact exact laws on that, but are you kind of noticing some businesses kind of start to come down and, and be headquartered down there as well?
1: Uh, lots of bitcoin only businesses here in el salvador i don't know the exact laws but i do believe it's something like that zero percent capital gains tax and uh i don't know i don't know the income laws tax but if there is any i I remember it's very low as well if not zero um so yeah bitcoin businesses are absolutely flocking here to el salvador it's uh it's great to see yeah for sure and then
0: uh yeah so I, I'm gonna bring it back and transition it to a little bit back to the dollar because you know we've seen the dollar. We talked about it a little bit with the Fed back and forth, raising interest rates and everything. And you know, you made a, a pretty, uh, I guess, great argument for the for what I'll say about the U.S. like potentially weaponizing the dollar with by backing it with Bitcoin. And uh, I think it's is overall pretty interesting because, from my view. Uh, before I read your article, I kind of thought that the U.S. would have the most to lose when it comes to adopting Bitcoin, just because they have the currently the global reserve currency and everything like that. But, you know, your whole theory kind of starts around the the dollar milkshake theory. So for those in the audience that don't know that, why don't you kind of get into that? And then we'll kind of break down your theory about how the U.S. could potentially weaponize uh, the dollar by backing it by Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, so that is the common uh, misconception or the common view. Okay, if Bitcoin is going to be the next global reserve currency of the world, this is terrible for the US because they have the global reserve currency. Um, And I kind of took the absolute opposite side of that argument with the article. Uh, But starting with the dollar milkshake theory. So essentially, it was a great thesis proposed by I think it was Brent Johnson in 2018, maybe 2019. I think it was 2018. And he just said, hey, look, I believe in the next recession, it's not going to be a garden variety recession. I believe we're heading towards the end game of this, uh, you know, 80 year financial system that we've currently been operating under. And Brent believes that we're going to get into a sovereign debt crisis, which is going to morph into a sovereign currency crisis. And Brent believes you're going to see a wave of dominoes all around the world uh, hyperinflate. And he believes that the United States is going to be the last currency left standing in a wave of uh, sovereign currency crises all around the world. Um, The reason for that is because the U.S. is still the global reserve currency. Uh, So 70% of global trade still happens in uh, U.S. dollars. And um, Brent, and obviously because we've been operating uh, with the U.S. at the core of the reserve currency status for the past 80 years, what you've seen is lots of these countries have taken on a lot of U.S. dollar denominated debt. And so obviously when you have a recession, or a global depression, what happens is people are really fearful with what they do with their money. So when people are fearful, they rush to safety. And today, safety is still the US dollars, because countries all around the world have debt denominated in dollars. So when when you see people rush to safety, makes the dollar stronger. And when the dollar gets stronger, that's why you see the index like the Dixie get stronger, which has gone from like 85 to 116 in the past 12 months. And when the Dixie gets stronger, all of those debts around the world that are denominated in US dollars, they become harder and harder to pay. So if you're in Turkey or Argentina and you're a corporation with US dollar denominated debt, well, you've got a really big issue because you're receiving your income in the local currency, Turkish lira and Argentinian pesos, and you need to pay your debts in the US dollar, which is getting exponentially stronger. So the thesis that Brent lays out is okay. As these countries around the world um, have issues servicing their debt, what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to print their local currency, devalue their local currency, and then go into the open forex markets and trade the local currency for the dollar to pay their US dollar denominated debt. And it's just essentially a feedback loop that gets uh, that makes the US dollar become stronger and stronger over time. So uh, that I think that's kind of the thesis um I'm, i know we're live i might have to pause here and uh grab the charger for my laptop because she's about to go flat but uh is that okay if we pause for a sec yeah go for it man go for I'm it s- sorry man
0: no worries no worries the low budget operation here at green candle this is this is the kind of audio content you come here for but, uh, yeah, while Luke is grabbing his charger, I'll give a little preface here. So, you know, obviously, we, we're, we're talking right now about his article and how, uh, you know, he, the U.S. could potentially weaponize the dollar. We're, we're talking about now how, you know, some of the negatives about, uh, you know, the U.S. having the global reserve currency. And I'm just kind of going over a little bit about what you're saying, painting the picture a little bit for the potential mm-hmm. of a Bitcoin back dollar. Um, and, you uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, a lot of these world de- denominated debts in the U.S. dollar, uh, it just seems like it's going to keep kind of exponentially growing as the dollar becomes weaker and weaker. And a lot of these countries are going to essentially, you know, just not be able to pay that back. So is that, you know, kind of, I guess, the viewpoint that you have for uh, the reasoning of moving a little bit towards like the, the Bitcoin back dollar or, um, yeah, why don't you kind of get into that thesis?
1: Yeah. So the reason that I believe the U.S. will be forced to back the dollar with Bitcoin is because I think you're going to get into a situation where people lose faith in the U.S. dollar, despite everybody having to dollarize itself due to its local currency blowing up. So obviously we have inflation in the United States. People are losing faith in the dollar. And what you're watching is the BRICS nations all around the world come out and announce uh, yeah, you know what? We're not going to use US dollars anymore. We're creating a new reserve currency. So this is actually what the BRICS nations announced uh, in June this year. So for anyone who doesn't know, that's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Um, at the 14th annual BRICS summit, they get together every year. and They normally just talk about geopolitics. This year, they came out with a big announcement and they said, yeah, we created a new reserve currency. We don't give a shit about the US dollar anymore. And for anyone who's familiar with history and uh, the U.S.'s involvement in the Middle East, they will know that's a pretty dangerous thing to say because, uh, obviously, Libya, uh, Gaddafi tried to get Libya onto a gold standard in 1996 and 1999, and we all know what happened to Gaddafi. There's uh, some pretty graphic videos on the Internet showing what happened to him after the U.S. invaded uh, Libya. Um, And then, obviously, Iraq tried to do the same thing. They tried to get off the dollar standard in the year 2000. Um, and because uh, Iraq started selling oil in euros in 2000, and obviously Iraq got invaded the next year um, and had bombs dropped on their head uh, by the US. So typically, saying you're not going to use the US dollar and escaping the petrodollar system hasn't been a very wise move for countries. It's been very, very dangerous move to take. But you've just watched um, uh, five countries, the BRICS countries, who represent over 40 percent of global GDP come out and give the U.S. the middle finger. So it's a massive announcement. Nobody's talking about it. That shocks me. Um, so I see that as like an economic act of war. So that's like an economic cold war going on right now. BRICS nations are saying, yep, we've had enough of the U.S. dollar. We're getting out. And to compound the issue, you've got, I think it's another six or seven countries around the world who are also applying to become a part of that BRICS nations. So you're watching countries like Argentina, Egypt, Saudi Arabia... Um, there's, so, there's a few other countries, that Turkey as well. All of these countries are applying to become a part of the BRICS. Um, it's Also showing that they don't want to use US dollars anymore. So um, it's, and there's obviously, and there's, so there's rumors that the BRICS countries are gonna back their uh, new reserve currency by gold. And I believe that's exactly what they're going to do because uh, Russia, they're the most backed fiat currency in terms of how much uh, fiat reserves they have compared to the amount of gold they hold. So they're one of the biggest holders in the world, Russia, on a per capita basis. Um, Obviously, India, if you look domestically in India, uh, the people have valued gold for thousands of years, and that's pretty much what they save their money in. Um, Let's look at another country in the BRICS, China. So China's official gold holdings is like one or 2,000 metric tons. But what they don't tell you about China is uh, they're actually sitting on well over 20,000 metric tons of gold. Um, If you go back and look at the amount of gold they've imported versus the amount of gold they've exported over the past 15 years, you can see that there's there's over 20,000 metric tons of gold sitting in China because the CCP doesn't let the gold miners export the gold. And you you can see clearly how much gold they've imported. So they're they're sitting on the most gold in the world, uh, three times what the U.S. supposedly holds in Fort Knox. That's if we do hold the gold. So I believe that, okay, we're operating on a U.S. dollar system today that's backed by a paper. Um, I believe that if the BRICS nations come out of a new reserve currency and it's backed by gold, I think people are probably going to trust that more than a paper-backed U.S. dollar. Even if, yes... We, don't, we hate Russia, we don't trust China and their fake gold, which they've been exposed to using in the past, I think people are still going to trust a gold-backed or a commodity-backed reserve currency more than a paper-backed US dollar. So that kind of leaves the US in a little bit of a predicament. What are they going to do if all of these countries are leaving the US dollar and they're going to use a gold-backed, uh, what are we going to call it, a ruble yuan or you know whatever you want to call the BRICS new reserve currency? I believe that the U.S. is uh, forced with their backs in the corner. I think the only move they can make on that chessboard is to back the dollar by Bitcoin, because what is more trustworthy than a gold-backed uh, BRICS reserve currency? Um, I believe it's a Bitcoin-backed U.S. dollar. I think, and I think that is far more trustworthy than a uh, than a BRICS gold-backed currency, even if it's backed by say five percent of Bitcoin. So. Uh, that, that was kind of the premise of the article. Um, we went down lots of different rabbit holes in that one, but uh, that's the kind of high-level TLDR of it. Well, yeah, I
0: mean, I think I think it is kind of an interesting time right now too because, you know, not only do we have that, we kind of have, you know, a potential of, you know, World War III going on. So it's not only like kind of like economic warfare going on, it might be actual warfare. And, you know, when it comes to that, yeah, I think the U.S. announced... Either today or sometime earlier this week, that they're sending another four and a half billion to Ukraine. So I mean, it's at this point, it's like, where is all this money kind of coming from? They're shipping a bunch of money over there to kind of fend off Russia from the Ukraine, and it's like, okay, you know, you kind of connect the dots here. Like, why are they really doing that? And it kind of leads to your point, right? It's like as soon enough, it might be another, you know, maybe a potential of like World War Three kind of thing, where it's like BRICS versus uh, you know everybody else, and it seems like they're kind of not only using the dollar and kind of economic warfare, but they're using a lot of, you know, obviously energy. You know, we talked about, our people have talked about, you know, Trump bringing up uh, a few years ago, Germany, the reliance that they had on Russian oil and gas, and then, you know, how that would cause a huge issue if Russia, you know, kind of held them by that. And, you know, look what's kind of going on over there. So we're, almost having like a a European energy, energy crisis as well. And I don't think that that's like, I mean, they were kind of saying a few months ago that this is going to be one of the coldest winters ever. And I don't really hear anything about that anymore as we're kind of creeping up along that. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of other factors here too that could lead to that. But You know, my I guess my little pushback to that is like, do you think that the, the policymakers in the U.S., do you have faith in them to kind of go that direction? Because it seems like, you know, up until this point, the current party that's in power has been very resistant to Bitcoin and kind of, I guess, just diving into that ESG narrative, finding all FUD that they possibly can to kind of go against it.
1: Yeah, so this kind of goes back to the thesis that the U.S. Fed is weaponizing interest rates to bankrupt the Eurodollar market and you know, Davos and, you know, Klaus Schwab and the great reset. Um, the, the thesis put forward by Tom Longo in 2021, which is a brilliant thesis. Uh, he stipulates that there's factions within the United States. So there's obviously there's a faction within the U S which is trying to implement these ESG agendas um, which you see most prominently in Europe. Um, So that's obviously trying to force the oil and gas companies to transition to solar and wind. And this is like a core premise of like the Great Reset. They want us using unreliable forms of energy. They want us using less energy. So Tom's kind of pointed out, hey, you have puppets like uh, Joe Biden and Janet Yellen and a lot of these kind of like Democrats. They're they're, They're pretty much puppets of Klaus Schwab. And they're on team, kill America. They're on team, we don't care about America. We're implementing the Great Reset. We want to print a bunch of money, uh, devalue the US dollar, uh, all in the name of climate change. So that's one part of uh, a certain group that's within the US. And then Tom Luongo kind of says, hey, look, there might be another faction within the US itself that is actually looking out for the US's interests. So they may represent the Federal Reserve, which is being told what to do by the commercial banks in the US who have just recently done a massive pivot on this whole green agenda. So Jamie Dimon's come out bashing the green agenda saying, we can't do what Europe's doing. This is idiotic. This is crazy. Um, so I think that's a really interesting thing to watch. Or watch the divergence within the United States itself. Um, but if you look at the US, I think we're still posturing more friendly towards Bitcoin than any other nation in the G7 is. Um, So I think that's also something to keep an eye on as well, because despite having Biden and these Davos controlled Democrats trying to actively destroy America, um, you still watching, you know, relatively favorable regulations and laws be pushed um, in America. And I think the fact that it's a Republic is uh, really beneficial as well, because uh, states like Florida, states like Texas, Um, even Arizona, I think they're going to trip over themselves to make Bitcoin legal tender. Um, Even if you have the Democrats and even Biden uh, try to try to sign some really Orwellian laws that kind of make Bitcoin adoption unfavorable in the country. I think the U.S. is uh, sitting in a pretty nice position um, compared to these other countries like Europe, for example, the banned self-custody wallets. That's full Orwell, and you have the the new uh, World Economic Forum puppet that's been instil, uh, installed in uh, England, he's coming out and saying, yeah, we love central bank digital currencies on a retail level. Um, and obviously Australia as well, um, like we're, we're not looking very, very favorable towards Bitcoin over there. We're looking more, you know, to go down the kind of uh, 1984 Orwell path and follow our good friends, Europe and Britain down that kind of way. So I think uh, yes, there's some negative things in the US surrounding Bitcoin, like New York trying to put a Is what is it called? Miranda, I, I can't pronounce the word, the word, but Miranda they're Rice, um, Talk about
0: Miranda, right?
1: Yeah, something like that. Like, apart from small laws like the uh, New York trying to kind of squash Bitcoin mining, I think overall, as a country, it's looking far more favorable, uh, versus other countries in the G7.
0: Yeah. And I agree with you. And here's another, I guess, little tidbit that I get that I would uh, bring up and I want to hear your thoughts because, you know, I've, I've heard sailor kind of talk about it and, you know, some of these other uh, CEOs that are kind of uh, involved with Bitcoin, but, um, you know, it's at the end of the day, the, the U S is all about money. It's a capitalistic, uh, it's a capitalist country and they really care about, you know, all all this, you know, money and, and jobs and everything like that. So, you know, my argument would be if you're going to make like negative policies when it comes to, uh, you know, Bitcoin and and some of these other, other things and like some of these regulations, then you know, why would the SEC kind of allow a company like, you know, MicroStrategy to hold so much Bitcoin? You would think that there would kind of be some regulations around that. And then, you know, there's also a lot of Bitcoin mining companies that have gone public in the US. And so if they thought they were all kind of, I guess, frauds or, you know, that the SEC wasn't really doing their due diligence behind it. I feel like a lot more regulations would be, you know, placed and there wouldn't be as many, you know, publicly traded Bitcoin miners. I believe there's, you know, an ETF too around Bitcoin miners. So I I don't think that they would allow that if they were planning on or at least, you know, questioning kind of the validity of Bitcoin. So I think, you know, to your point, you know, it might be that they're just kind of, uh, you know, loud in the media and uh, and kind of some of their speeches, but like behind closed doors, they're kind of supporting it um, in a sense. Do you kind of, I, I guess, do you ca- kind of see where I'm coming from there or do you not hold any weight when it comes to some of these publicly traded companies?
1: No, 100%. You absolutely hit the nail on the head. I prefer to look at somebody's actions as opposed to what they're saying loud and proud in the media. Um, Like if you were the U.S. and I believe if you were trying to uh, back the dollar with Bitcoin, I think every single step the U.S. has taken over the past 24 months is exactly what they should do if they were going to back the dollar by Bitcoin. You wouldn't announce it. You would put out, you know, lots of you'd get the Elizabeth Warrens and you know all of the idiots to start shrieking negative things about bitcoin in the press and um you would kind of you would kind of walk that tightrope between saying yeah bitcoin's okay and then you you could say oh bitcoin's for criminals but you actually with your actions you allow microstrategy uh to speculatively attack the dollar and borrow billions of dollars to uh to you buy, borrow billions of dollars and actually buy Bitcoin. I think that's a massive move. Um, and then obviously you've got the largest oil and gas companies uh, like Exxon Mobil. I think they're the largest oil and gas company in the US. Um, and they were actually, before they announced they were mining Bitcoin, I believe they were actually invited to a meeting at the White House with like five or six other companies. or There, there was a very small handful of individuals at that meeting. I don't remember the specifics. It was earlier this year, Um, but they were at a meeting of the White House and then a couple of weeks later it comes out and it says they're mining Bitcoin to uh, diminish uh, their carbon emissions. So I think like there's some really big signposts that the US is posturing favorably towards Bitcoin. You've even had Janet Yellen, who I regard as a Davos-controlled Yoda Yoda troll. Um, She's actually even come out and said, Satoshi Satoshi Nakamoto's innovation is real. Um, Gary Gensler said the exact same thing. Um, who's obviously the head of the SEC. So you have people very high up, head of the Treasury and the SEC both able to actually distinguish the difference between Bitcoin and crypto. That's massive. The, you, you don't see that in Europe or UK or Australia or any other developed G20 nation. It's all just crypto crypto blockchain blockchain, CBdc that's all they talk about. But in America the narrative is very different. It's Bitcoin and then there's all these other 22,000 unregulated securities. And then you know, yeah, we maybe we'll think about doing a CBDC at a wholesale level in the future. So I think the discussion in the US is very interesting if you're paying attention. That is,
0: yeah, for sure. And I think you know the biggest distinction too that that Gensler said is that it's Bitcoin and then everything else is a, a security. So mm. um, you know, I, I agree with you on that point too. It's like you know, if, I guess if you listen a little closely and you kind of watch some of their actions. I do kind of see where you're coming from with the potential of the Bitcoin back dollar. So uh, I'll be looking for that in the future. And uh, maybe maybe your thesis will become right and we'll have you back on the show. But you've been very generous with your time. So I really appreciate you coming on and uh, discussing all this with me. Why don't you tell people what you got going on and where they can find you?
1: Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. Um, I ship posts on Twitter all day, every day. Uh, my handle is LukeMikitch21. Um, obviously, um, Amber. I like. I write lots of articles at Amber. We just rolled out to 62 countries. So um, to, to to celebrate, we're giving everybody $10 of free Bitcoin if they sign up with Amber. So um, you guys can feel free to um, go grab yourself $10 of free Bitcoin. Um, yeah, I think it's linked in my bio, my Twitter profile, because um, I think $10 Bitcoin is going to be worth a lot of value in the future if we do. Uh, reach a kind of hyper Bitcoinized world where one Bitcoin is $65 million. Got to run the numbers. Um, what is that? One if, if, Does that mean every dollar today is worth like $4,000 by 2030 in today's yeah. purchasing power? Something I like that. So. Yeah. With, with Bitcoin at 15,000, you've got to slap about a 4X on it. Uh, so 4,000X. Um, stack accordingly, ladies and gentlemen. So yeah, I, I shit post on Twitter. Um, I write articles on Amber. I manage the Coinbeast uh, social media account also on uh, Twitter. So keep an eye on that. Um, obviously got my own uh, YouTube and podcast channel. So that's uh, Bitcoin Made Simple. Um, and yeah, I just uh, thank you so much for having me on, dude. It's been been an absolute blast. And I love checking out your spaces on Twitter. So if there's anyone listening here on the podcast apps, they should definitely check out your discussions on Twitter because I, I always pop into those as well to talk some shit. So. Um, I love everything you yeah. do, man. And thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. And yeah, we'll have to have you
0: on and yeah, pop into the spaces. You'll hear Luke live there. You can ask him some questions, maybe heckle <laughs> him a bit on his yeah. thesis and whatnot too. So yeah, be sure to pop in there and uh, yeah, Luke, thanks so much.
1: Thank you for having me. I invite the heckling. So please come and
0: check us out on